your Bible and open to uh, Luke chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 6, verses 36 through 38, and talking a little bit about how Jesus wants you to respond to bad people. I'm sure in some ways it applies to everyone, what Jesus says, but that's the context. He's pretty specifically talking about how should we respond to bad people, which is maybe not so politically correct to say, I know, to talk about people as uh, bad people. But God has enemies. The Bible says that. Uh, We used to be among God's enemies, actually. God has enemies. There are people who are opposed to God and opposed to what God wants, a lot of them. And sometimes because they're opposed to God, they are opposed to us, which can make things uh, a little confusing in terms of what do we do, how do we live. Because uh, sometimes people will do bad things to us, and they'll do bad things to us just because we are Christians, which is actually what Jesus has been talking about. You remember maybe what he said at the beginning of this sermon in verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, which I always think is intense that, first of all, he says we're blessed if this happens because that's not how we normally think of it. But second of all, because this is what he assumes is going to happen. If you follow him, people are going to hate you, exclude you, revile you, and spurn your name as evil. Spurn. That's normal. Jesus assumes it's going to be normal. Sometimes people are going to do bad things to you because you are a Christian. But sometimes, you know what? They'll do bad things to you just because they're bad themselves. And so it's not so much about you being a Christian It's more about them being bad, which is confusing as well. I mean, if it's confusing to know how to respond when someone mistreats you because of your relationship with Jesus, it also can be confusing to know how to respond when people just do bad things to you. And they do. Sometimes it's big bad stuff, like stealing from you or taking advantage of you or cheating you. And sometimes it's smaller bad stuff, like lying to you or gossiping about you or disrespecting you, but whether it is big or small, people do bad stuff all the time to you. This is the world that we're living in right now. There are a lot of bad people doing a lot of bad stuff, and sometimes we see them doing it to us because we're Christians, and sometimes we see them doing it to us just because they are bad, and sometimes we see them doing it uh, not to us personally, but more just to God himself. Or to others, we look around and we see people all the time loving their sin and hating God and saying crazy things and hurting people. God has enemies, lots lots of them. And it's important to know exactly how God wants us to respond to them, to people who persecute us, to people who mistreat us, and to people who are living in rebellion to him. In fact, you could sort of say this is like following Jesus 101. Here we are, we are following Jesus, I'm following Jesus, you're following Jesus, we're following Jesus in a world that doesn't love Jesus and that doesn't love what Jesus loves. How do God's friends respond to God's enemies? I remember thinking 
about developing a short course on following Jesus a while ago. And so I was thinking, what do people who are interested in Jesus need to know at the beginning of their Christian life? But then I realized that I didn't really need to come up with that on my own because that's pretty much what Jesus is doing in Luke 6. Because in Luke 6, Jesus is preaching a sermon to people who are interested in following him. Luke says, verse 20, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. And most of them didn't really know much about the Christian life at that point. And so Jesus is giving them the basics of what it meant to follow him. And one of the very first things he teaches them is how he wants his followers to respond to people who are doing all these bad things to them and all these bad things around them, which I think is still really relevant for us, actually. I think this is important right now as followers of Jesus, that we think about how Jesus wants us to respond to the people who are opposed to us and sinning against us, and even to those people who are clearly and obviously sinning against God. Because I'll tell you one big way that we're tempted to respond right now. And this is a really popular way to respond. And it's actually becoming socially acceptable. And it feels like it's everywhere. And it's contempt. That's how I think we're being taught to respond, contempt. I was reading an article this week, really good, and this is what he was warning about. He talks about it as a silent spiritual killer, contempt. And what is contempt exactly? He says it's more than disagreement, it's disgust, rooted in the inability to see the image of God in your opponent. And that's pretty common right now, right? Disgust. Even in churches, actually, partly because it feels like there are things to be disgusted about. We are seeing real evil, and we want to do something, say something, you know? And right now, one of the ways we're being told to prove that we're on the right side is by showing how much we despise the people that are not. In fact, it's to the point that if you don't really show me you despise them, I might not believe that you're even on the right side yourself. Which is weird, and more than weird, if we look down at the text, it's actually pretty much the exact opposite of what Jesus tells us about how he wants us to respond in verse 27. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Jesus knows there are going to be people there who don't hear this. He's talking to those who are able to listen. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. And so it's like if you're going to follow Jesus, first, you need to know you're going to have enemies. And then second, you need to know how to respond. And here's how Jesus wants you to respond to them, to love them. And you remember that it's not just love in theory either. Because Jesus gets specific and he explains what this love looks like, starting first with the way love acts towards its enemies, love's actions. And this is verses 27 through 35, which we looked at last week, and saw that it's not just a a feeling that he's calling us to, but instead he's talking about very concrete things, like how we act as they're persecuting us. Do good to those who hate you, he says, and bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. And if that's still a little too general for you, Jesus gets more specific and gives some real-life illustrations to think through. To the one who strikes you on the cheek... Offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. 
Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Which obviously is pretty radical. I was uh, trying to say last week that Jesus is talking here specifically about the way we respond as we're being persecuted. He's talking into a very specific situation, and so we're going to have to be careful about taking these principles and applying them to everything without thinking about other principles in other places of the Bible. But still, Jesus is talking to people who are persecuted and saying that you should respond to the people who are mistreating you by treating them the way you would want to be treated. And so when they humiliate you for following him, let them. And when they try to make your life more difficult because of your relationship with him, look for ways to make their life easier. And when they're in need, give to them. And when they steal from you, don't worry about making them pay for it. Which is so obviously shocking that I think some people are going to think it's impossible. And to make themselves feel a little better, they'll say, you know, even if I'm not responding this way to the bad people who are doing bad things to me, at least I'm kind to my family and my friends. And so Jesus lets us know that he's really serious about loving your enemy like this. In verse 32, he says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Which is Jesus' way of saying, I think, that Following him means something. There is supposed to be something different about you as a follower of Jesus. And one important difference is in the way you respond to bad people. Because the whole world loves people they think are good people. And I guess even in the world, some people may learn to put up with annoying people. But what's unique for us as Christ followers is this active, sacrificial love for people who are legitimately doing bad things. Which again is not optional. Jesus says we must love our enemies first through the way we act toward them, which he summarizes in verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. Which of course is difficult enough if we stop there, but The thing is, Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes deeper in verse 36 and talks about love's attitude. Not just love's actions, but love's attitude. What does it mean to love your enemies? First, it has to do with the way you act toward them. But second, it also has to do with your attitude toward them, which is where this command really gets intense. If you thought it was intense before, this is where it gets really intense. Because it's one thing to do the right thing on the outside, But what is supposed to be going on on the inside as we respond to these people that are so clearly doing all these evil things? If you look down, you see that Jesus starts by giving us a pretty general place to start. What do you do? Be merciful, which is to be like our default attitude as we interact with people, like our homepage, mercy. That's what love's attitude needs to be towards people who are doing bad things, like persecuting us. And what's that mean exactly? What is mercy? It's kind of a big word. But at the very least, it's an attitude of compassion and pity and sympathy and favor 
and kindness and concern specifically for those who don't deserve it. An emphasis there on those who don't deserve it. So if we're looking at someone who's not living the kind of life that deserves you to show them any kind of kindness, like maybe they humiliate you for loving Jesus, or they steal your cloak, whatever, that's not an excuse for not showing them mercy. Like, they don't deserve it. Because that's actually what is at the core of what mercy even is. Because you can really only show mercy to someone who doesn't deserve it. If he deserves it, it's not mercy. So I'm saying, if we're talking about bad people and how we should respond as followers of Jesus, the kinds of things that normally would make you look at a person's life and cause you to be disgusted by them, and rightfully so, are the kinds of things that make them the kind of person you need to be merciful to here in verse 36. And, you know, I kind of want you to be blown away by this. This is something that could legitimately make you upset. Like, if you don't see how this could legitimately make someone upset, then you're probably not hearing what Jesus is saying. Because it's so different. It is so countercultural. Because as you look at this, think for a minute about who Jesus is talking to. I mean, they are to show mercy. That's what they are to do. But who are the people that Jesus is commanding to show mercy here? What is their life situation? You remember how he started? Blessed are you who are poor. So they're poor. These are the ones who are hungry. These are the ones who are weeping. These are the ones who are hated. These are the ones who are persecuted. These are the ones who are mistreated. And who are the ones they are supposed to show mercy to? What's their life situation? They're rich. They are the, one, they are the ones who are full. They are the ones who are laughing. They are the ones who are doing the persecuting. They are the ones who have the power. Which is where it gets interesting because we would normally say, catch this, we would normally say that the people who are rich and powerful should feel compassion and pity for those who are weak and abused. But Jesus flips it. He's actually speaking to the weak and abused and saying, you should be feeling pity and compassion for the ones who are rich and powerful. Because they are truly the ones, if they are persecuting you because you are loving Jesus, if they're rebelling against God like that, they are truly the ones who are in the most miserable condition, not you. Because you are blessed. And of course, pause for a second. Of course, if Jesus were primarily talking to people who were doing the persecuting here, he could say all kinds of things to them, like, this is wrong what you're doing, James does. But Jesus is talking to his followers, Luke said. Remember, he, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and Jesus is saying that if we have a relationship with him, that we actually can't use our life situation as an excuse for bitterness, for resentment, for harsh attitudes, even toward people who abuse their power, which is where it's like, whoa, you know? Whoa. 
And there are wrong ways that people can take this and do, seriously, they, they do. And so there's more that needs to be said if you're thinking through all the Bible says about responding to bad people. But at least right now, I think it's important we see that Jesus here thinks differently than most people. Maybe he thinks differently than some of you. Because again, here is this person who's getting beaten and he's getting whipped and you come in there and you're going to command somebody to show mercy. Who are you going to command to be merciful? You would totally command the person who's doing the whipping. And of course, God wants them to be merciful. They're going to be judged for their lack of mercy, no question. But here, Jesus is talking to his followers and so he's just bypassing the person who's doing the whipping. It's like they're not even there that day. And he's talking directly to the person being whipped. And he's saying, it's you who needs to be merciful toward this person who is whipping you. Why? That's, that's the question. Why? Because that flat out doesn't make sense to most of the world. Even a lot of Christians. If we look at what the command is, be merciful, and to who? Your enemies. Why? Most of the world doesn't understand that. Why should we obey this command? Which is an important question, because you know we're not minimizing the evil here, the injustice. And if all there, li if all there is to life is this life, <laughs> and there is no one who's looking out for you, and everything depends on what you can get for yourself, this is like the worst command ever, actually. <laughs> So we need a really good reason. And Jesus gives a couple. The first being the fact that this life is not all there is, which is all throughout verses 20 through 35. And one reason we respond differently than unbelievers when we're being attacked is because we're operating on a whole different view of the world than they are. And history and time. For one thing, we know there's a great reversal coming where everything pretty much gets flipped upside down, which means we may be suffering now, but we're only going to be suffering for a little while, and then everything changes forever, which is one, one big reason we show mercy. This life is not all there is. And we're not on our own here either. That's the second reason, which Jesus stresses in verse 36. He says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. And there are two big truths there. One is you have a father. And two, your father is merciful. Obviously, unbelievers have a father too. But their father right now, unless they repent, is the devil. And the devil's not merciful. He has no mercy or compassion. It's one of the things that's going to make hell, hell. God takes away this compassion and pity that unbelievers have and allows them to be just like the devil, really. The devil has no compassion. And so when you meet an unbeliever who is compassionate, that's sweet and it's great, but it's a little surprising because that's not how the leader of their tribe, you might say, feels towards anyone. Because the devil has no pity. Where our father, as believers, is different. We're part of a different family. And our family's culture is merciful. That's the culture of our family. That's our tribe. And let's take a moment to enjoy this, because I'm not sure we always appreciate just how merciful God is. Do you think much about the mercy of God? I think many of us probably don't. And part of that is because we're tempted to think of God as our equal. That's how we've been trained to think. But he is not our equal. So the way the world actually works 
There is a God, and there is everything else. Which means God is in a category all by himself, which means he owes us nothing. He is the creator, and we are the creature. And so we're not on the same level here, us and God. There is a huge distance between us in terms of greatness and importance to the point where for him just to stoop down and think about us at all would be amazing in and of itself. But there's an even bigger problem than us just being human, and that's our sin, which puts a greater distance between us and God because the Bible tells us that God's eyes are too pure to look on evil, which means that basically everything about us is crying out for judgment from birth. And nothing is really stopping God from doing that either. I mean, we're not God's equals, and so God can do with us what he wants. And who can argue with that? Just like you can do with your property pretty much what you want. And given how sinful we are, he has the absolute right to pour out his wrath on us because our very nature is characterized at the core by all the stuff that he hates. That's how we come out of the womb. And yet as we look at the Bible and even our own lives, it's clear that God is not just pouring out wrath. Instead, he is quick to show mercy to sinners. The whole Bible is a story of God's mercy. But even now, if you want to start proving God's mercy, the fact that we are even born, that we're not all in hell, is mercy. Just that. And that kind of messes with us because I know we're so used to thinking that we deserve all kinds of good stuff that it's easy to get upset about all the things God didn't give us and to start asking questions about the difficult things that are happening. And there are a lot of difficult things that are happening. But first of all, we go back to the beginning of the Bible when God made the world. It wasn't like that. That came after we sinned. And what's more, you see who God is and who you are and who people are and what we've done to the world and what we deserve. You start to see that actually an even bigger question than the bad things that happen are the good things. Because God is constantly being kind to people who hate him. He's constantly showing mercy. The world is literally exploding with examples of God being kind to people who absolutely cannot stand him. Like breathing, like eating, like sleeping, like having babies, like being part of a family, like being loved, like laughing, like beauty, like coffee, like chocolate. It's mercy. They're all examples of mercy. The ultimate example, of course, being our salvation. And now we're kicking it up a notch because when God went about saving people, you realize he only picked those who don't deserve it. And so he didn't look down and say, I'm going to save people who do deserve it. Because if he did that, there wouldn't be anyone who would ever be saved. The truth is, if God even said, I will only save the people who have only sinned one time, or who haven't sinned that much, that would be a huge demonstration of mercy because one sin is one sin too many when you consider the holiness and justice of God. But in saving us, God's gone way beyond that. He saved people who have sinned literally millions of times. If you know the law of God, you know. You're like breathing sin. And I can keep going, actually. You want to know how merciful God is? God has shown that he is willing to extend his mercy to absolutely any kind of sinner as well. No matter how many times they've sinned, 
and no matter what kind of sin they've committed, as long as they're just willing to embrace his kindness for themselves, which is stunning to think about. How merciful is God? There are, are people who have murdered other human beings who came to God, and he took them in, like, welcome to the family. There are people who, just because of their hatred for God, persecuted, literally tortured other Christians who, who, who have come to God in repentance, and God showed them kindness. Welcome to the family. There are people who were prostitutes and pimps and gangbangers who came to God, and God poured out his love on them. Welcome to the family. And there are self-righteous religious people who spent most of their life praying to themselves and feeling like they're superior to others because of these little tiny things that they've done who finally repented of their sins and came to God, and God didn't even blink before he showered them with his loving kindness. Welcome to the family. Jonathan Edwards once put it like this. I love it. Talking about the mercy of God. He said, God is infinitely exalted, unendingly lifted up above all created beings in goodness. There's not even, when it comes to goodness, you compare God and, and humans, there's not, even a, there's not even a comparison. Think about a human king. Just a human king. Goodness and mercy and patience is the glory of an earthly king. But in this is the Lord, our God, infinitely exalted above them. God delights in the welfare and prosperity of his creatures. He delights in making of them exceeding happy and blessed, if they will but accept the happiness which he offers. And he gives examples. All creatures do continually live upon the bounty of God. He maintains the whole creation of his mere goodness. Every good thing that is enjoyed is part of his kindness. When kings are bountiful and dispense good things to their subjects, they do but give that which the Almighty before gave to them. So merciful and full of pity is God. Now, this is the part. Come back to me with this quote. So merciful and full of pity is God that when miserable man, whom he had no need of, who did him no good, nor could be of any advantage to him, had made himself miserable by his rebellion against God. He took such pity on him that he sent his only son to undergo his torment for him that he might be delivered and set free. And now he offers freely to bestow upon these rebels complete and perfect happiness to all eternity upon this, his son's account. There never was such an instance of goodness, mercy, pity, and compassion since the world began. All the mercy and goodness among creatures falls infinitely short of it. This is goodness that never was, never will, never can be paralleled by any other being. God has an unparalleled mercy ministry. So maybe you think you've been merciful to make a comparison. And maybe you've forgiven someone who sinned against you, and that was so hard. You remember how hard that was. But listen, no matter how hard it was for you to forgive that person, there is no one in your life who has done anything worse to you than people have done to God. And so if you bring up an example of the worst of the worst, we can find 10 examples of people who have been even worse to God. And yet, in spite of all their sin, he's been willing to extend them an invitation filled with mercy. Our Father 
is a merciful father. You look at the way he treats unbelievers. You look at the way he saved you. You look at the way he deals with sinners who repent. What's more, you can look at the way he's working in your life right now as a Christian because it's like he never gets tired of showing mercy. And so you can just think maybe about how after God showed you all that mercy and forgave you and saved you, what did you do? Because that's a lot of mercy he showed you, right? But what did you do? Did you wake up the next day and spend every moment loving and obeying him? No. Most of us, we didn't even make it a couple minutes before we started being selfish again or proud. And that's not just true when we first started out as Christians. We're still sinning against God. And you know what? Every day we wake up, we find out that his mercy doesn't run out on us. It's endless. There's never a time when we come to God and he's like, you know what? I am sorry, but I have had a bad day and I am all out of mercy right now. There is no one in the entire universe more merciful than our Father, God. And if you want to know how to respond to bad people in this world, Jesus says, imitate him. Be merciful. That's what to do. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. That's why. Now, how exactly? What does this look like? Because we can get funny ideas of what it means to be merciful. And so Jesus gives us a a couple specific characteristics of the merciful attitude that he's talking about. The first having to do with negative attitudes that you need to put off if you're going to be merciful. You have to put off certain attitudes. And number one is a judgmental critical spirit. Verse 37, judge not. Being merciful means not judging. But what does not judging mean? That's the, a real question. Because sometimes people think being merciful means what you're saying is ignore sin or affirm sin even, and they use this command as, as proof. In fact, it's almost like a conversation stopper, actually, for some people, and they can be doing the craziest sinful things and even saying the most crazy sinful things, and the moment you say, hey, you know, that's not really right, they're like, judge not, judge not. You're supposed to be merciful. I thought Christians were supposed to be merciful. Or they can be believing this stuff that's absolutely wacky. It has no basis in anything God said. It's all made up. And you're like, that's not really what the scripture means. And they're like, judge not, show mercy, remember, as if that were the end of the conversation. Except that it's not what Jesus is, is intending here at all when he tells us we shouldn't judge. And we know that because, for one thing, Jesus himself told us we're supposed to confront people when they're in sin. In Matthew 18, 15, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. So being merciful doesn't mean we don't notice sin or that we don't confront sin or that we can't tell the difference between truth and error either because, listen to Matthew 7, 15, Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, which is what a lot of people call judging when you beware of someone because you say they're false or you recognize them as a false prophet. But it's not what Jesus meant by judging because he doesn't contradict himself because in the very same place he commands us not to judge, he commands us to stay away from false teachers and tells us that we can and must identify these false teachers by their fruits. And you know, if we need any more proof, look at Jesus because we know Jesus is merciful. Most people would say that. And yet Jesus called out people who were sinning and who were in error. And sometimes he spoke very strongly. 
And I guess I'm just emphasizing this because we need to understand being merciful isn't the same as ignoring sin or error because a lot of times the absolutely most merciful thing you can do for somebody is expose their sin or error. Like it wouldn't be merciful if you didn't rebuke them or call them out. If you're believing something that's going to mess up your life or take you to hell, how is it merciful for me not to talk to you about it? That's the opposite of mercy. And if you're doing something that is going to do damage to you or your relationship with God, how is it merciful for me not to sit down and have a conversation with you about it? That's the opposite of mercy. In fact, when people say you shouldn't judge them because you're confronting them, you could say back to them, you probably shouldn't, but you could say back, then why are you judging me? Because you're assuming I'm telling you this because I don't love you. When the reality is the, the whole reason I'm talking to you right now is because I do. And so you can't just take something Jesus says and make it mean something that's completely different than so much of what he says in other places, just so you can do what you want to do without anybody stopping you, especially if it wouldn't make sense if Jesus somehow meant that. And it's important that you don't do that with this command because one thing all these wrong ideas about not judging does is keep us from appreciating what Jesus is really talking about, which at its heart is just basically having a generous spirit towards people. That's what it means to be merciful, having a truly generous spirit towards people. Because if you look at the four commands he gives, judge not, condemn not, forgive, give, they're all different angles on the same thing, really. So like, read verse 37 with me. He says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned, which is more the negative side. And then forgive, and you will be forgiven. And give, which is the positive side. But you put them together, the positive and the negative, and they give you a picture of someone who just wants the best for other people, even his enemies. I guess if you want a picture of the opposite, what does the opposite of being merciful look like? You see, just a verse later in Luke, Jesus is going to warn about these bad teachers, and he describes what they're like in verse 41 when he says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not see the log that's in your own eye, which is the opposite of mercy. And what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about people with this like self-righteous attitude who are always seeing the problems in others and are so quick to want to tear them down. People who have become so good at seeing other people's faults and sins that they could spot a speck in someone else's eye even when they have this huge forest growing out of their own, which is so tempting. That's part of why this is here. It is so tempting for us to become so hard on people that we're not even really so much against their sin anymore as much as we are against them. They disgust us. And it almost feels right, or at least not wrong, Especially as you look at them and you can see they're doing all these bad things. And that's especially tempting when you're trying to do the right thing. It's tempting to start thinking of yourself as maybe just a little bit better than they are. And as a result, start looking at them with contempt. Like, I mean, these bad people, seriously, these bad people. What's wrong with them? You know, maybe a classic illustration of that is Luke chapter 18, where Jesus tells the story about two men who go to the temple to pray, and you know it right, but one was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector, and the tax collector would have been like the Pharisee's enemy, basically, because he represented Rome and he was trying to make money off the Jewish people. 
so he could get rich. And you remember how the Pharisee responded to that, the religious person. He looked down on the tax collector, and he stood by himself in the temple, and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, which is what? It's judging and condemning, and it's the kind of attitude Jesus is talking about here that you absolutely have to put off if you're going to be merciful, and we need to be merciful. This is what it means to love our enemies, what sets us apart as followers of Jesus, our attitude towards our enemies. How do we respond? We have to be merciful, but what does it mean to be merciful? It means that we have a generous spirit towards others, and how do you get that? It means you have to stop thinking of yourself as so much inherently like better than other people and stop looking down on them as such a different and worse kind of sinner than you are. And it's not that Jesus is calling you to be naive here, obviously. That's not the point. It's not that we're supposed to look at these people who are living these awful lives and say to ourselves, I think they're really nice at heart. You know, I think they're really nice. I remember (laughs) talking to this one, one sweet grandma one time about this person who had murdered someone else. And and she was like, but I, I think he's probably really a good person. And I'm like, ah, you're so nice, sweet old grandma, but he's obviously not a good person. That's not what Jesus is asking of us, to close our eyes to reality as we look at people sinning. It's not that they are not terrible sinners, but we're supposed to remember that we all were terrible sinners too. And yet God was patient with us, and he showed us mercy. And so as we interact with them, we don't close our eyes to their sin. In fact, we even hate their sin. But until the day they die, we pray God helps us keep on loving them with a hopeful spirit, hoping that they might turn to God and find the same kind of mercy that we did. It's funny, if you look at our culture right now, our culture has a counterfeit version of mercy, I think. And it's really counterfeit. It's pretend. So they tell us it's not kind or loving to confront people over sin while at the same time being so arrogant and hard on people all the time, usually for things that are not sin. (laughs) This is the way it works for most people who aren't Christians. How do they respond to people who they think are bad people? I'm sure there are different options, but a lot of people, what they do is they don't talk directly to the person about their sin, at least at first. And yet if you happen to be around them when that person isn't there, and you listen to the way they talk about the person, When they're not around, they're gossiping and slandering and acting as if they were their judge. And what Jesus is saying is that he wants his followers to be characterized by something very different in their relationships with other people. First of all, in the way they act towards them, but second, in their attitudes. They need to be merciful, which involves, one, not having this self-righteous, critical, small spirit that just goes around condemning people as beyond hope, and then more positively, involves being quick to forgive and give even to those who have really hurt us or done incredible amounts of evil, which is what we've got to put on. Put off judging and condemning. Put on forgiving and giving. This is what it means to be a merciful person. In fact, you don't see it in the English, but verse 37 in the Greek actually begins with the word and. Be merciful and, it's like Jesus is saying, let me explain that. Don't judge, don't condemn. Instead, forgive and give. I know we all have different personalities, But your default attitude should be a a generosity of spirit. I want to forgive you. 
I want to give to you. I once knew this guy. Every time he would go to a restaurant, he would put a certain amount of money on the table. And he would tell the waiter or waitress, uh, that's how much tip I might give you if you do everything right. And every time they would make a mistake, he would take a little bit of the money away. And uh, there are some people who are like that when it comes to their relationships with other people. At the beginning of the relationship, they're like, okay, this is how good I might treat you. But every time you make a mistake or sin against me, a little bit of that love and a little bit of that generosity I'm going to take away. And there's no way for you to get it back. And Jesus here is like, no, that's not at all how we are to be toward people if we're going to follow him. Instead, when they sin, we are to be quick to forgive. Which, of course, implies when they don't sin, when they just make mistakes, we should be even quicker to overlook them. If this is what it means to be merciful, we forgive sin, then obviously we should be just as merciful when people aren't sinning. They're just making mistakes. There are some people, and you know this, it's like they're living their life with a hammer in their hand. They think they're Thor or something. And they want people to be wrong. And the moment they're wrong, they jump all over them and they pound them. And it doesn't take much, even just a little mistake or sin. And then out comes the hammer and it's like, bang! They just start pounding. When Jesus says here, our attitude should be the exact opposite. We should want people to be right, if at all possible. And when they're clearly not right, we should be willing to overlook what they did if it was a mistake and willing to forgive it if it's a sin. I know some of us, we have this picture of ourselves as good people. Have you ever met somebody who doesn't think they're a loving person? Very rarely when people come for marriage counseling will they say, you know what I think my problem is? Uh, I think it's that I'm not loving a loving person. Very rarely. Usually it's this other person. I'm like so sweet, but this other person, I, I don't know. Most of us have this picture of ourselves as basically good people, but the fact is we can be so hard on others, so hard. And if you're hard like that, you need to see it as sin. That is sin. That's not loving your neighbor or loving your enemy. It's sin, and you need forgiveness, and God is willing to forgive. That's the beautiful thing. That's part of why it's so important we as Christians are forgiving and giving. And Jesus spends some time on this last one. If you look down, he says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. You can let that one sit there for a little bit. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the me with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And that's a promise. And the picture behind it is pretty sweet. It's uh, of someone who sells grain or corn, and he's measuring out the corn. And so he takes a whole bunch, and he puts it in a cup, and then he shakes it so that the corn settles down. And then he fills it up some more, and then he stuffs it down there. And then he puts more in, and then he stuffs it down again. And then he takes it out of the cup, he puts it in a cone, he taps the sides of the cone to press the corn together until there's literally no more room for another piece of corn in there. And so it's like God is taking all this mercy here, and he's trying to stuff as much mercy as he can into this big old bucket, and then just pouring it out on the generous person's lap. And you know what? He really does. He does. A merciful God loves merciful people. 
And he loves to show mercy to people who are merciful in all kinds of different ways. And so I know maybe you might think this command of Jesus is is so hard, loving your enemies like this. And so you look for another way around it. How can I do that? How can he ask that of me? But I'll tell you what is much, much harder than loving your enemies, and that is not loving your enemies and not being merciful and being judgmental and, and not being forgiving or giving. That is way harder because God is so full of goodness to those who trust him enough to obey. It's amazing what God does when believers follow Jesus and respond differently to their enemies. I read this week the testimony of Mitsuo Fuchada. Have you heard of him? I probably said the name totally poorly. I'm so sorry. But Fuchada was Japanese, and he grew up uh, loving Japan, obviously, and, and not so obviously, but hating the United States, partly because of the way the United States treated Asian immigrants, actually. But eventually, he attended a military academy, and he joined Japan's Naval Air Force. And by 1941, he had 10,000 hours of flying behind him, and he established himself as the nation's top pilot. When uh, Japanese military leaders needed someone to command a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, they chose Fuchada. And so he was one of the pilots who flew that day. And I think he, of, of the 70, he was the only one who returned alive. And so he was like a Japanese hero at that point. But after the war ended, he writes, he returned home to his village near Osaka, and he began farming. But it was a discouraging life. These are his words. I became more and more unhappy, especially when the war crimes trials opened in Tokyo. Though I was never accused, General Douglas MacArthur summoned me to testify on several occasions. As I got off the train one day in Tokyo's Shibuya Station, I saw an American distributing literature. When I passed him, he handed me a pamphlet entitled, I Was a Prisoner of Japan, involved uh, right then with the trials on atrocities committed against war prisoners, I took it. What I read was a fascinating episode which eventually changed my life. On that Sunday, while I was in the air over Pearl Harbor, an American soldier named Jake DeShazer had been on duty in an army camp in California. When the radio announced the sneak attack demolishing Pearl Harbor, he hurled a potato at the wall and shouted, just wait and see what we'll do to you. One month later, he volunteered for a secret mission with the Jimmy Doolittle Squadron, a surprise raid on Tokyo. On April 18, 1942, DeShazer was one of the, the bombardiers and was filled with elation at getting his revenge. After the bombing raid, they flew on towards China, but ran out of fuel and were forced to parachute into Japanese-held territory. The next morning, DeShazer found himself a prisoner of Japan. During the 40 long months in confinement, DeShazer was cruelly treated. He, He recalls that his violent hatred for the maltreating Japanese guards almost drove him insane at one point. But after 25 months there in Nanking, China, the U.S. prisoners were given a Bible to read. DeShazer, not being an officer, had to let the others use it first. Finally, it came his turn for three weeks. There in the Japanese prisoner of war camp, he read and read and read and eventually came to understand that the book was more than just a classic. 
piece of history. Its message became relevant to him right there in his cell. The dynamic power of Christ, which Jake DeShazer accepted into his life, changed his entire attitude towards his captors. His hatred turned to love and concern, and he resolved that should his country win the war and he be freed, he would someday return to Japan to introduce others to Christ. DeShazer did just that. After some training, he returned to Japan as a missionary, and his story printed in pamphlet form was something that Fuchada could not explain. And he says he couldn't forget it either. The peaceful motivation I read about was exactly what I was seeking. Since the American had found it in the Bible, I decided to purchase one myself, despite my traditionally Buddhist heritage. In the ensuing weeks, I read this book eagerly. I came to the climactic drama, the crucifixion. I read in Luke 23, 34, the prayer of Jesus Christ at his death, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I was impressed that I was one of those for whom he prayed. The many men I had killed had been slaughtered in the name of patriotism, for I did not understand the love which Christ wishes to implant within every heart. Right at that moment, I seemed to meet Jesus for the first time. I understood the meaning of his death as a substitute for my wickedness, and so in prayer I requested him to forgive my sins and change me from a bitter, disillusioned ex-pilot into a Christian who had a purpose for living. And on that day, I became a new person. My complete view on life was changed by the intervention of the Christ I had always hated and ignored before. Fuchada became a Christian and eventually became an evangelist, actually. And how? How? A big part of how is God first transforming Jacob de Shazer's heart and enabling him to love his enemies and show mercy to those who hated him which is a pretty spectacular story, of course, since most of us aren't going to be bomber pilots in a world war, hopefully. But if we are committed to following Jesus, there are going to be people who hate us and do bad things to us. And like Jacob DeShazer, at that moment, we have a choice. And if we want to make an impact for Christ, this is a really great place to start. How should God's friends respond to God's enemies? Love. Love your enemies. How? First of all, by your actions, but second of all, through your attitude. We show mercy. We confront sin without becoming self-righteous and hard. We demonstrate a, a generous spirit, forgiving and giving even those who are hurting us, which is going to be hard but worth it because God's going to use that to bless us, to bless others, and to bring himself glory in some really surprising, awesome, unexplainable ways. Let's pray. Father, you, you are alive. Your word is alive. And you're speaking to us. Help us to have the kind of ears that hear. To put down our excuses. To look at you. To really look and be overwhelmed by the mercy you've shown us. And transformed into the kind of people who take a stand for you. Are persecuted as a result and who love the people who persecute us for your glory and for their good. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.